0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to Marketing Nerds. I'm Brent Satoris, and I am joined today by Will Reynolds, founder of Sear Interactive, well-respected speaker. I think uh, you're actually keynoting at PubCon this year, um, and currently director of strategy at Sear Interactive. Um, Will, we've known each other for, for quite a long time, so it, it's a pleasure to have you on, and I'm, I'm happy that you were able to take the time and uh, join me today.
1: Well, thank you very much for having me, man. I really appreciate it.
0: So so I want to get a sense of kind of like, I've been asking everybody this that I've been talking to because people have titles, people have articles they're writing, presentations they're writing. But I want to get a sense from you real quick of what exactly are you into these days, both at Sear and, and, and marketing as a whole? Like what things right now are you involved in and excited about?
1: So it's, it's crazy. I'm in SEO from like the super early days. You know, we go back, we go way back. So the days of you know, Phantomaster scripts and, and cloaking. So I started doing SEO back then. And the thing that's got me really excited about SEO today is doing paid search to accomplish outcomes that I used to get from SEO. Um, once you kind of start to see the levers that are pullable by paid search or social targeting, it's like a whole new world. So I actually can't peel myself away from AdWords, Facebook, Twitter because it just seems like every day I'm like wait you can do that too so that's what I've been working on a lot lately
0: and and when you say like are you talking about using the paid elements or are you talking about everything altogether
1: I'm mostly talking about using the paid elements um, because, you know, I mean, think about it. You, given your background, you were always really good with like, you know, understanding networks and how people work and what they want to share. But for a lot of us who started in SEO, it was never really about people or targeting. It was more about how to figure out what the algorithm wanted. And now the ability to pay to get in front of a very targeted audience or to retarget those people with very advanced tactics. To me, that crap is just fun. It feels like it's a whole new world for me.
0: Um, you've. Made- mentioned a, a number of times, and you even mentioned it right now about outreach methods, right? You're talking about using uh, Twitter, Facebook, some of the paid elements, some of the social elements to, you know, uh, promote content, right? And, and, and you, you also mentioned a lot, of, a lot recently about creating content that stands the test of time, as you would quote it, right? What exactly do you mean by creating content that stands the test of time?
1: So for me, content that stands the test of time, Is content that you write today that you know when somebody hits that piece of content two or three years from now, they're still gonna get value from it. It's still gonna help them to make a decision better or to learn something that they didn't know in the past. That's also to me really exciting because I'll pay to get eyeballs and I'll pay to get journalists and I'll pay to get influencers to continue to see content that I legitimately feel when they see it, they're going to go, this could actually help a lot of people. And I think that that is a way just to kind of build that content that I know the term is mostly referred to as like evergreen. Evergreen, yeah. Right? But it's, it's, it's one thing to build something that can rank forever. It's another thing that you think that you've built that can help people make better decisions, be more educated whatever it may be for days and days and days.
0: You know, that that brings up an interesting concept because I think that one of the things that we do from, uh, you know, social promotion side, right? We do a lot of organic promotion. And one of the things we'll we'll typically try to do is go back and look through Reddit, look through Facebook, look through some of the old, um, you know, history logs of all the activity that somebody's had in social. And we'll look for things that were successful three to six months ago. And if it's evergreen, we'll look at kind of re-promoting that. We'll also try to look through somebody's analytics and go back like, okay, what performed really well a year ago? And, and I think that, that that touches on something that I think a lot of people end up creating inadvertently but don't even realize that they have this content that they could be re-promoting and growing and building. Um, is, is that something you find? And how do you typically work with clients to be able to find that old content and, and, and work it into their strategy?
1: Well, you know, here's the thing. like, n- There's no client... Who is typically going to say when you come to them, wait, I found some old content you have that we could just re promote that you don't have to like rebuild and get approvals on? Um, that's going to say, no, I don't want you to look at that, right? So, one of the things that I learned with one of our clients was a big client, and they were like, we're not going to build anything new. They're like, But you guys say that you find ways to promote great content. Well, they're like, we're a multi-bazillion dollar company. We've been producing great content for, you know, 80 years, right? And their challenge to the SEER team was like, how could you go back and re-promote some of our old stuff? And that was like, they're like, are you game for that challenge? And I was like, hmm... I'm like, game on. And what you find and what, even, what we've even found for ourselves is like we wrote a guide a while back to how to use if this then that to do some really cool stuff. That piece of content is usually getting like 8, 9, 10,000 uh, visitors a month. And that's almost like a year and a half old, yet we're writing all this new content that in the aggregate doesn't get half of what the old stuff gets. And that really got me kind of changing my mentality to say, how can we build content today that we think will continue to to help people, which will obviously rank for the long haul. But then let's also go back and look at the old stuff we did, because as user signals become more prevalent, Uh, If your content that is great is old, like our Screaming Frog guide is old, but it still ranks really well, and it still helps people, but it could be better, right? Because the -hmm. the, the tool's been updated. So it's like, will we start to, as user signals start to degrade, will we lose some rankings for some great content where we could help people? Because it's like Google's going to come back and go, well, a lot of things have changed in this space We're not seeing you keep up with it. So I'm a big fan of when you produce content that takes off and does well, don't just high five yourselves. Like, you know, start setting up every six months. We're gonna reevaluate. Can we use that content as like a beachhead to rank for other types of content? Or what parts of it are old? Let's pull that out and make sure we put the new stuff in.
0: So with that, like, you know, we were, again, so we were kind of talking about um, repurposing the content to go forward. What I'm kind of interested in here is is with with that content, do you have any tactics that you use to determine which content is worth putting the energy into?
1: Ooh, good question. Um, so earlier, it was much more of a gut call. I mean, you would go in analytics and you look at like, uh, you know, are people sharing it when they get to it and whatnot? But today, what we're doing now with our assets is we're really tagging them very well. So, for, in, for instance, excuse me, if I have video on my content, well, now I can actually tell, are people viewing that video, how far are they viewing it through. Um, I'm looking at scroll depth on the content. I'm looking at people hovering over the share buttons. So now what Sear is starting to do is get much more strategic in setting an asset up in the first place where we can to be able to have the right tagging in place so we can truly tell, does this feel like an asset that when people are getting to it, they're actually engaging with it and it's solving their problems. And if so, then we know it's worth pouring our time into kind of repurposing it or putting more time into it.
0: And have you done any, have you done any testing into it to see like on average when you find an article that has these factors and then you go back and rewrite them and relaunch them, you're seeing a, a growth like afterwards from search?
1: Dude, I wish. Um, I'm just now literally doing this for ourselves, right? Gotcha. So um, I will have data, I'm actually sharing data in my uh, upcoming presentation uh, at SearchLove I'm doing in a couple weeks um, where I'll have some more data to share. But to me, this just kind of hit me recently where I'm like, man, I looked at our traffic one day and I'm like, this old piece of content we wrote is getting more visits and views than like the last 30 blog posts we wrote combined.
0: Hey. And, and that's I when it, I started thinking of that. Exactly. And I see, you know, honestly, we see the same thing as Search Engine Journal a lot. We'll go back and look at what's been the driving force for traffic over the last couple of months, and we'll look at it. And, you know, there might be a couple articles here and there, but we'll notice that it's there, there's a handful of articles that, you know, are dated, that are still driving the highest level of page views, the highest level of visits. Um, you know, it, it strikes me when you're going through this of an idea that, you know, you might even be able to, using analytics reports and i'm not you know the smartest analytics guy but to be able to track drop off like the drop off of traffic you know how you can do spike reports like hey this has an increase of x amount but if you could find out what an average view is and then say send an alert when that view starts to drop below a certain number it might be a way of setting yourself up to be notified when something's starting to lose its um its place right
1: Yeah, Uh, let me take, I'm taking some notes on that. So you're gonna have to give me a pause. Um, No, I really like that. One of the things that I'm also looking to do now that I'm playing with AdWords and retargeting is now I'm able to realize and tagging that if I say someone has scrolled 75% of the way down, then I can put them into a custom audience. Um, I can set up a pixel to put them into a custom audience into Facebook, into Twitter, right? And I'll say, okay, this tag will just continue to build me an audience of people who got that far through the content. Then what I can do is when we go to update it, I can then turn that audience live and say, start showing ads to people who got to this point in our content over the last X number of months with the fact that we've just updated this piece of content to bring them back in and get them to re-engage once again when we update it.
0: Interesting you could also probably just I start to identify who's deep readers and who's not you know If you're doing like white papers, or you're doing like other type of learning things you could say like this person is truly a deep reader uh, You know, I'm gonna send them into some of our longer form content that, that'd Bingo. Be Interesting too. yeah
1: like, That stuff that stuff to me is super cool because you start thinking okay I've got an asset it took off it did well it's starting to get a little bit dated I can update it, but then how am I going to let the world know it's updated? Ooh, if I start setting up retargeting pixels from the beginning, those retargeting pixels are starting to build an audience. So then when I go to update it, I can just advertise right back to them automatically. Like That's the kind of thing that I'm really interested in starting to do now.
0: See, this leads me into an interesting question that I wanted to ask you about because you're one of those individuals in our industry that like you did SEO for a long time. You still do essentially. I mean, we shouldn't say you used to, you still do, but you you focused heavily on SEO. You've obviously got a lot of experience in PPC. You, You know, based on your conversation we're having now, you have experience with analytics and you also do a lot with strategy. When it comes to, you know, having the opportunity to be kind of like you know versed in many different areas a jack of all trades if you would call it do you feel it's important to have a decent knowledge of all these areas to really succeed today or do you think it's still okay for people to be like super focused into one skill set
1: you know I think that's a that's a to each to each his or her own approach for me I want to help solve people's problems and and I want to help our clients build the types of content that solves people's problems. So because my ultimate goal is to help, help people when they get to content go, wow, this really helped me, then I want to get in front of that person in any way humanly possible. I don't want to be boxed in to one set of tools and not know, you know, it's like, If somebody told you to get from here to California, and they never told you that a car or an airplane existed, and you just started walking, you might go, well, shit, you know, I I like walking, but not that much, right? So I love SEO, but not more than I love helping people to find content that solves their problems. So therefore, to me, it was a natural extension to be able to sit with a client and to at least understand the levers that are pullable at a very real level so i know what it's like to go in and create custom audiences does that mean i'm going to do it all the time no but when i sit with a client and they start talking to me about their issues with content if i'm an seo sometimes i'm thinking how can i make more of it how can i optimize what i already have if i know some of the levers that are pullable on ppc i might say well we're not producing content just to produce content we're producing content to solve a problem and if i can bring a larger tool set to that then i'm really focusing on the out the which is to solve a problem for a client versus the output of how much content did I get done and where does it rank? Well, you've always kind of thought that way. I mean, like, from my experience with you, it's like you've thought more about what makes people tick, uh, what makes people want to share, what makes people, you know, feel, you know, good about the stuff they're sharing. And um, to me, you know, I I started reading books from people who were doing marketing in like the 1900s. And I was reading books from this guy, Claude Hopkins, um, called Scientific Advertising, and you just start realizing, like back in the day when people didn't have an algorithm to figure out or to trick, they had to know how people worked. And I'm willing to place the bet that understanding how people work and how they make purchasing decisions is a, is a harder skill to disrupt than just understanding how Google works.
0: Interesting conversation has been coming up a lot. And you mentioned it as well when we were talking recently about Google+. Um, you know, there, there is a, a number of opinions out there uh, and strong opinions on both sides. You have people on one side saying, look, you know, Google Plus is going nowhere. It's got, you know, its own office space. It's got its own staff. It's, a, it's got a direction. It's got a purpose. And then there's other people who feel, you know, Google Plus is on its way out. Um, and, and, and I'm curious to get your point um, on what you believe is the future of Google Plus Plus. And, 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 and explain kind of like why you have that view.
1: Gotcha. Um, well, you know, to me, I think one of, the, one of my responsibilities for our clients is to help them to figure out where they should have a dog in different fights because they know they can't be in all of them. And they're saying strategically, well, where should we kind of put 5% of our time to make sure we don't miss the boat? And for a while it was Google Plus for me, but now I'm really starting to peel that out unless there's proof that there's an audience that is really into what they have to offer on Google Plus. So like the auto community is pretty strong on Google Plus. So if you're in a like like I think Ferrari has like an amazing like Google Plus setup. They got a great community there. If you look at photography, great Google Plus communities. But outside of certain niche areas, I'm starting to see tell my clients, look, I'd rather us look at spending our time in social targeting Pinterest or other areas, because Google Plus to me, given the decoupling, so Google tried to force it for a long time. And once they realized that that wasn't going to take, even when they tried to connect it all, the fact that they're starting to parse these things out, like their photo app is amazing. It, It blows away anything else that I've seen out there. I can type in rear view mirror in photos now, and it'll show me photos where I've taken pictures in rear view mirrors. That's insane. The funny thing though is they've taken like a Trojan horse like that that they could have used to continue to keep us on Google Plus and decouple it. They're taking Hangouts, which was the other thing that they did amazingly well or pretty well. Uh, I'd rather use Skype most times, but they did a pretty good job on it. A lot of people use it. They've decoupled that from Google Plus. So I'm a little bit concerned about having my clients spend any real time there unless there's data and proof that their community is on that platform.
0: I think that what Google did that nobody else has done is they really forced it. It wasn't a play of like, we want to make a really good social platform. It was like, we're behind on social. So let's utilize our big reach and our large audience and force social to occur. And I think that, you know, if you look at Google from a search perspective, they created a search engine that everybody wants. You know, that was so successful that people don't call it the internet, they call it the Google, right? You right. Know, I mean, they, they surpassed branding to that point, right? And, and, and that wasn't forced. It, it was natural, mm, right? And I think mm. the thing is is that when you take an audience that you have with Google and you force social at them, it's almost the worst of two worlds coming together. I would say that applies for almost all social sites today, right?
1: <laughs> totally, right? I, uh, I think you bring up a great point uh, there is, you know, you remember when somebody told you to try out Google. Right? And you remember when you're like, oh, I'm using Yahoo or Lycos or Hotbot or whatever. And when you used it, they earned the right for you to come back because the results were so great. And that's an interesting way of looking at it versus forcing people. Like they didn't have the bully pulpit to force people to use anything. And now that they've got it, instead of them building something that would earn, hearts and minds, they just tried to force it kind of in. Um, so it's interesting to see that the way it's kind of gone.
0: One last question I really wanted to ask you about, and, and that's, uh, you know, something that is, is kind of near and dear to me as well, and that's your work with Covenant House. Um, I, I'd like to get a little bit more insight into what you're doing with Covenant House, the yearly sleep out, and, and also what, pe- what, what would you like people to know about that cause in general, and why does it resonate with you?
1: Okay. Well, um, one of the things for me is part of the reason why I ended up starting Seer is because I was volunteering at different organizations, and my current company at the time wasn't really giving me the time to be able to do work at night and then to go and do some of the things that I thought made me a better like citizen in the world. So um, for me, the Covenant House was one of those organizations I started with like 12, 13 years ago. And when somebody explained to me the fact that at, you know, 17 18 19 years old you know more or less 18 and older our government treats you like you're an adult when you go from being 17 years old in 364 days and then the next day all of a sudden you've just miraculously matured and you're on your own and i understand that there's needs for cutoff, so i'm not blaming anybody for that however um you realize that kids don't just mature overnight and unfortunately then they're kind of just pushed out on their own as kids In like adult shelters, so the Covenant House is really there for kids who are usually like 18 to 22 ish, 23, um, who are still trying to figure things out and get them back on their feet. And I got involved with them, like I said, 12 or 13 years ago. uh, Just started really working with kids. Like you know, I think at this point in Sears' trajectory, it's pretty easy for me to write checks, but I've always valued seeing other perspectives. Actually, I think seeing other perspectives makes you a great marketer, period. But outside of just marketing, like it just makes you a better human being when you can kind of check yourself. You know, So I've had and worked with kids who when I do my annual sleep out, which is usually in November, um, you know, when it's cold out or late October, you know, I'm sleeping out overnight. And to have a 17 or 18-year-old kid kind of describe to you how to set your box up and keep yourself safe at night when you're sleeping out in the streets of Philadelphia and I'm sleeping out there with maybe 20 or 30 other people, you're like, damn, at 18 years old, I was kind of at college, hanging out, hitting on girls, hanging out with my boys. And at 18 years old, this kid who's just given a different hand in life was thinking, how do I stay safe? How do I look outside of my box at night? How do I stay warm? And I just, that's it, always just touched me. And I've always wanted to be a part of that organization.
0: And so you actually do a, a, a yearly sleep out where you go out and, and stay out in, in, in the element for the whole night?
1: Yeah, it's brutal sometimes too, man. Um, I've done it like four years in a row now. Um, one year we got lucky and it was like 45. And then uh, last year, I think it was 27. Um, so it was so cold. Uh, I mean you're numb super early by like 12 o'clock. You're numb and then you're just like I can't leave until 6. You're sleeping outside somewhere in Philly. Usually it's in Germantown which is not the best area um, in a parking lot. So we're safe kind of. But you know there's a vulnerability you feel when you're outside and you hear like somebody uh, you hear like a backfire and you're out in a box. You think it's gunshots, right? Um, Because you just feel so open to the elements and to whatever happens. So it's really interesting to feel that vulnerable. Um, And for me, it's a great reminder that as stressful, quote unquote, as this life could be with running a company and Google making changes and all that stuff, it really helps me to keep that part of my life in check to realize that that's really not that big of a deal. The things that are, quote unquote, stressful or tough ain't shit compared to what some kids are going through every day on the street. So it helps me to keep my life in check. I probably get more out of it than even the kids do.
0: Yeah, balance is important, and uh, I think that you can never lose sight of compassion, right? I mean, it's it's one of the things that I think, especially being in a city environment, it's easy to kind of become numb to you know people who need a little bit or who need a little help, or to start thinking you know oh they they they're all just lazy or they don't have you know they don't care they don't try you know and, and to not realize that in some cases people don't have a choice and it, it's just where they've ended up.
1: Yeah, a lot of it's the hands you're dealt. I mean, like my dad. Uh, for instance, grew up in Philly on welfare. So, you know, uh, and then he just chose to live a life a certain way that helped me to be who I am. But, like, not everybody's dad did that, right? And that's just the hand you're dealt. So for me, it's just really important to try to make the city a little bit better and help some of the kids in the city have a little bit better shot at life.
0: Well, thank you for your uh, good community service and your help in that, that cause. And thanks again uh, for joining me uh, for the podcast. I really enjoyed it. Um, you know, uh, I'm hoping that we'll get a chance to talk again soon. And I, I think you were saying something like we're going to have to definitely hang out in uh, PubCon and go out and uh, uh, get a drink at least once.
1: Definitely, man. I'm, I'm going to be there. I'm bringing my mom with me. So maybe you can hang out with me and my mom for a
0: minute. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> I'd be happy to. Thanks, Will. I'll talk to you again soon.
1: You got it, Brent. Thanks for having me, buddy.
0: This Marketing Nerds podcast has been brought to you by Search Engine Journal. For more news, interviews, and how-to guides from marketing experts from around the world, visit us at
1: searchenginejournal.com.